Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. We are going to start with the textbook, which is Tradition and the Church by Monsignor George Aegis. And uh, we are up to chapter seven, Aberrations of Protestantism. Uh, Father, we can start with the first headline, which reads as follows. Protestantism is inconsistent. Would you like to elaborate on that? Uh, well, sure. But uh, actually, it's pretty self-explanatory, actually, when you actually look at <laughs> yeah. Protestantism. It is, uh, you know, it is, uh, uh, there's no basis for logic. It's all built on sand. Um, but basically, you know, I like what Monsignor uh, had said on page 136 when he says, <clears throat> Uh, in the opinion of some, the chasm between the conservatives or fundamentalists on one side and the liberals or modernists on the other is widening and forming, forming a permanent division. Now, he's talking, of course, about the Protestant sects in that regards, is that, uh, you know, that you can have uh, these all these different b diverse beliefs and everyone can believe what they want because basic it's rooted in uh, one's own personal um, interpretation of that. So you're going to have these divisions, but I'd like to just point out, and as you read this book, and I've said this before, is that when you when he talks about Protestantism and that, you know, keep in mind, you can really insert Novus Ordo as well, because mm -hmm. the tenets of Protestantism is the basis for really the Novus Ordo religion. Um, and so in the Novus Ordo, if you read that sent that same sentence, you know, you have conservatives and you have liberals in the Novus Ordo, and they both say different things, uh, but they're apparently they're both Catholic. And so there's a deepening, as you see now, and has been for every, you know, the conservatives, though who tr those who try to be Catholic or try to hold by what the church has always taught, and of course the liberals who, you know, anything new and novel is, is good and everything must change, is that there is a, and has been for so many years, uh, decades now, really, is that a widening chasm between those two, and it's permanent. There's no, I mean, there's they're mutually exclusive amongst each other now. So, but that's, that is a sure sign then of the inconsistencies in, in regards to the understanding of faith, and it's built on sand. And so you have, you know, it's a, uh, you know, Monsignor goes and he talks about how the the within the Protestant sects themselves, hmm. you know, you have uh, conservatives, more conservatives. And you can say, you know, pick any any of them. Just say pick the Episcopalians. You know, you have or the Anglicans. Let's say you have the High Anglicans, you know, who who retain at least uh, more conservative bent. You know, they they don't want um, you know women bishops, quote unquote, and all this sort of thing or and then you have the progressive or the low Anglicans or Episcopalians, you know, they want, you know, all the liberal things. And there's kind of no, but the conservatives will always insist then upon um, their creed that they, that they hold to for their religion, their sect. You know, the, the dogmas that are supposed to be there. And it's um, things, as Monsignor points out, things like the verbal inspiration of the Bible, the virgin birth of Jesus, the the uh, theory of, of the blood atonement of our Lord, the physical resurrection of our Lord, you know, and, and his second coming. You know, these are the things, you know, that they'll hold to. But the problem comes in is that uh, how can they impose a rigid set of rules, a rigid set of dogmas, a rigid set of beliefs on their people when the whole first and foremost tenet of, of 
Protestantism is private interpretation. Mm. Is that each individual is left to himself to interpret everything according to his own dictates because you know that's what Luther had started. And so you have this tragic logic of the the uh, Protestants who it's almost I mean it's again you can look to the Novus Ordo and you know it's you can look and point to like the conservatives within the Novus Ordo who are trying to uphold you know the tenets of some you know the of the faith and and some and, and many of them and but yet are being rebuffed all the time and and, and the 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 angst and the uh you know the uh, um um animosity that is built in the the, the all that is uh, chaos ultimately results from that and so you have it's built on that that illogic of you know well we want private interpretation each individual is, uh, is unto himself but uh, you must adhere to these dogmas set forth by someone else. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so, you know, you have conformity, as Monsignor says, too. Uh, one of the things, again, he explains, says, by what logic, and he's talking about the uh, um, Episcopalians, and he used them as an example, but he says, by what logic may the Episcopal bishops or any other elders in any Protestant dom- denomination require conformity or submission of the intellect on the part of their clergy or laity on any Christian doctrine which, no matter how orthodox or sound it may be, is based on the principle of private judgment. Mm. So it is, it's kind of a, a, a tragic um, um, circular motion that they go through as, you know, they want this, they want, they want private interpretation, each man is unto his own in that regards, but yet, no, no, we have to, you have to abide by these rules, you have to abide, even some have, may have a hierarchy within their own Protestant, you know, denominations, and so it is a, you know, it's a, it's a, well, as Monsignor says, it's illogical, even in the basis of sense, I mean, there's no reason to it, ultimately, hmm. but again, you can look to, you can look to the Novus Ordo, one thing you can say is that, uh, because uh, um, in the Novus Ordo, you know the people who want to be Catholic uh, look to the church, look to the leaders of the church for their guidance, for their for their um, um, uh, understanding of the faith, etc., and to obedience to that. So they they have that. You know that's what the Catholic does. But yet you have the the hierarchy then who say things like, uh, well, like Bergoglio, you know, saying. How many like last year, a couple years ago, he says, you know, confronted with the moral problem, moral uh, degeneracy of of sodomy, saying, you know, well, who am I to judge? You know, I mean, <laughs> basically saying, you know, who, you know, living up to people, which is actually a tenet of the Novus Ordo religion, which is that of conscience is king, irregardless of everything else, is that one must follow their own conscience, no matter what, and that's right in a certain sense but it has to be a formed conscience which is subject to the ter- the church the teaching of the church and you know you can't go against that but not in the Novus Ordo it's actually a a version of the private interpretation the private judgment of the Protestants so it's really ultimately the same mm. I think Bergoglio has a bit of an infatuation for Martin Luther and Protestantism Oh yeah, they had their they had their love fest just you know not too long ago, and in, in, in beginning the uh, 
you know, count down to the 500-year anniversary of uh, Martin Luther's uh, break with the church. Um, you know, Bergoglio's over in in London there, and you know, praising him. And, and but see, this is the kind of the thing. And when I was in seminary in in the Novus Ordo, I mean, you know, it, it, we were being taught in maybe not explicitly in many areas but it certainly is always implicit in ecumenism that really martin luther is a he was a really a he was a good guy he was just a little uh impetuous uh the church really didn't understand him is what they're <laughs> saying you know we're we're the round work was being laid when, to us as seminarians there to be able to you know ultimately and my guess is that the novus ordo eventually um was er, pr would probably I would, I certainly can see them say lifting the excommunication of Martin Luther, um, you know, in for this big celebration next year, for the for the Lutherans, you know, their 500 anniversary as a, as if as a sign of, uh, you know, uh, we're with you kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so you know, who knows? It, it's certainly he, but you know, Martin Bergoglio and all the modernists, they love Martin Luther because I mean, they, Martin Luther rejected. Authority. Mm. He rejected. He rejected uh, the Catholic Church. He rejected obedience to her. Um, you know. So of course the modernists love love him. Yeah, I'm looking at page 140 here, and it says liberalism or modernism in any non-Catholic denomination, while it is wrong, nevertheless is more consistent with its principle of private judgment, carrying everything to its logical conclusion. Uh, that's pretty interesting to read there. Yeah, the um, it is uh, uh, there is there is a a logical conclusion even to an illogical um, formation mm. of, of one's thought in a sense. In other words, there's going to be an end to it. Yeah, you know, there's going there's there's going to be, you know, uh, eventually there's going to be a progression to where it's going to follow, and for Protestantism, you know, and liberalism and that is that. The the end of it of liberalism and modernism, the end the the final progression of that is ultimately then atheism, mm, because it will yeah. be a, a re total rejection of any authority, and a total repudiation then of God of the belief then in God because, um you know that all leads to, uh it, you know that's the the progression that it will happen by the tenets of liberalism and modernism because. You know, you reject this, you reject that, you reject the world, and then how could we know that that was even true to begin with? And if there's nothing to be given outside of myself, then well, then there's no God. So then I'm basically a God. I'm a little pope kind of thing. Mm, true. So it, you know, it is. Um, um, it, that's the the. Uh, there's a progression to everything, even into that of of something that is illogical. There is an end game to it, and you know, the end game. When you're dealing with faith and logic, of course, the progression is, of course, is comes from God to God. I mean, there there's a progression. I mean, it is it is a perfect progression to it. Anything outside of that, it it comes often from man, then to ultimately destruction. I mean, that's where it, uh, it usually ends because you you reject uh, the 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 tenets, the the foundation of of authority of God, and you know, so there. Uh, you know, so Protestantism is is truly inconsistent, and and the inconsistencies lies in the fact that uh, you know their their tenets don't even make sense to begin with. They 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 appeal to often man's fallen human nature, to one's pride, uh, 
uh, to one's uh, um, passions. Um, you know, Luther himself. Mm. You know, sin sin boldly, and you know, sin boldly because you know God will forgive you. You know, go ahead and in other words, go ahead and sin. It doesn't. You know, you're saved, etc. It'd be somewhat nice, but not true. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that it appeals to our fallen human nature. I mean, yeah, that's. I it. mean, Protestantism itself appeals. I mean, how easy would it be, uh, and how to say yes, I take Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and then I'm saved. I don't have to do anything else. I'm good. I'm good to go. I can do whatever I want then, really, except for maybe a couple things in this world. And then, hey, I'm fine. I'm going to heaven. How easy is that? <laughs> but mm, Too easy. You know, it's too easy, right? So, you know, I mean, our, God made it easy in a certain sense to get to heaven. Um, but it it re, it requires following his laws, not not our own our own that we've made or, or uh, we thought or we put him in a box that we want him to be in. Would you say that God has made it simple in as much as the laws are there? It's pretty, it's simple to find out what we have to do, but to live your life that way, you wouldn't say it's exactly easy, would you? No, the, uh, you know, we, to get to heaven, of course, I mean, we, you know, we must follow the commandments. We we must abide by God's law. We must, you know, do these, but really if we look in in the scales of everything, what God requires of us is really small mm. compared to what he gives to us. Mm. You know, I mean, as far as, so the, the scales are, are kind of out of, you know, I mean, it's, it's far greater what he gives to us, what he, you know, he'll give to us as his promise if we just do these, you know, little things. But the problem comes in is applying that, of course, to our lives because we are dealing with the threefold enemy of of the world the flesh and the devil you know the world of course the the worldliness around us the 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 siren songs of of the world of living according to the world's tenets we live in the flesh which is our own passions uh, you know we you know we always have to fight against those and of course the devil himself and you know which is using all of these things and so that's it's that's why it, it is a battle it's a truly spiritual battle and it's not it's not uh, I, I i always tell people this way is you know sometimes we have well like the protestants is that you know they it's like you're in a um let's say you're in a boxing ring and and and, and to fight but basically the fight's going to be you're you're dressed up in a nice white suit and and you know you don't uh, um you're all everything's impeccably clean and, and that and you and you go with you're against your opponent and you know you just sort of um you know just uh there's no really no punches per se there's just a little bit of a tap here and boy then that's a good fight and you're done you know and that's it no i mean spiritual life and and save one soul is a is a bare knuckled you know in in you're in the ring you're in a dirt ring you're in a bare knuckled ring you're going to be beat up you're going to be fighting you're going to be punching you're going to be bloodied here or there you're going to be you know in that regards that it's a spiritual combat is that that's what it is is that so i mean it's not necessarily easy uh, um, um, but the uh, because of our fallen human nature because of our own will but it certainly is um, it is not far far from being impossible because if it was nearly impossible or so hard you know God would be a cruel God mm. um, in that regards but by his grace by what he gives to us he gives us all we need uh, to uh, attain salvation uh, also on page 140, the headline reads, The principle of Protestantism considered as the main foundation and reason for its separation from the Catholic Church is an open contradiction. 
yeah, Monsignor does a very good job <clears throat> um, here in uh, um, giving you the the basic principles, the three principles which which Protestantism is based upon. And this is good for us as Catholics to understand this as well, because a lot of you know Catholics sometimes don't even understand this. But I'll just, I mean, he says basically the three principles are this. He says the first consists in the sources of faith, according to which the scriptures and nothing but the scriptures must be accepted. Meaning that, you know, sola scriptura, it's only the Bible. It's only the Bible that one is saved. That's that's the first, you know, basic one of the basic tenets of, of Protestantism. Another one is that the second lies in the means of justification by which man is justified by faith alone. You know, Martin Luther's big thing of, you know, faith alone only. No works, nothing of that. It's only faith alone. And the third is the the constitution of the church which he says, according to which all believers constitute a universal priesthood, all having the right and the duty not only to read and interpret the Bible, but also to take part in the government and public affairs of the church. In other words, private judgment is that one is, uh, um, is, is uh, you know, the sole interpreter of that. One is their own pope, basically, in that regards. But, you know, in regards, um, you know, but the Protestants... Uh, the quote here from um, uh, one of the Protestant uh, Chillingsworth, Chillingworth, um, some Protestant uh, uh, leader, you know, he says that the formula basically of Protestants is the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible is the religion of Protestants. You know, so you you look at the the basis of of the of the Protestant religion is those three basic principles um and and you know those are if you again look at that you can see that played out in protestantism certainly um but again it's the inconsistencies that will often pop up because as monsignor explains later um they're i mean they're right uh, they're just right hmm. through with it um, um the bible and nothing but the bible but as we discussed in the last episode there's quotes in the Bible that point to Catholicism over Protestantism. So even then, they're struggling. Oh, always. I mean, truly, if Protestants really read the Bible, and if they really looked at the Bible, they'd be Catholic. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and it's just, the, it's the same, you know, and you can point to the fact. So the Protestant tenant is the Bible, only the Bible, and that's, you know, that's all we need It's the Bible. Well, then you can just throw questions to them and say, well, so for then 1,500 years from the time of Christ until the printing press, mm. um, the Bible wasn't readily available to to individual persons. So what happened? I mean, if it's the Bible's the only thing that one can save their soul with, then all those people then who didn't have a personal Bible they could interpret themselves – were they are they all now damned? Are they all in hell now? I mean, it. it so the illogicalness is there, and, and then you can also ask them, well, where do we, where do we get the Bible? I mean, did did it fall down from heaven uh, already? You know, no, of course not. It was the Catholic Church who gave us the, the scriptures, the Bible, and you know, by by collating all that together, and so these are the the total inconsistencies that you can certainly see. Um, but it's, you know, the private interpretation, there's a, <clears throat> basically, you can look at it this way, is that, you know, if one, if one speaks with oneself, 
you'll hear what you want to hear and want to know. You know what I mean? Is that you know? I mean, I can I can talk to myself and say, and begin to talk, and I'll I'll hear what I want to hear because it's coming right from me. I mean, I I can. So I mean, it's that's private interpretation. Well, that's you know. So I can say something which I want to hear, but somebody right next to me can say something that they want to hear, and it'd be totally different. And then it'd be you know, that's apparently the Holy Ghost is working in different ways, mm. um, in different contradictory ways, and. Again, that's a illogicalness to uh, Protestantism. That point you brought up about 1,500 years before the printing press, before um, Protestantism came about, do Protestants believe that Catholics are damned? A lot of them, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, a, lot of, a, a lot of Protestants actually, um, at least in the older, at least according to the tenets maybe, I, I don't know about so much today mm-hmm. because Protestantism, again, has a, uh, it is so... Like we talked before, there's a there's a progression that will happen, mm-hmm. um, you know, in regards to those who are not uh, of Catholic faith. Is that the progression progression always ends in a loss of faith, always loss in perdition, and so Protestant a lot of Protestants today really are are um, they don't really even hold to their own tenets that maybe their their forefathers in Protestantism held a hundred years ago. But there is still a lot of Protestants today, yeah, who even who look at Catholics and say, "Well, you're not even Christian, right? You know, you're right. not." And, and you know, but the thing of it is, is that, and this is what I'm teaching in my apologetics class in, in the parish here. We've been doing it for the last year or so. Is that, you know, Protestants in the proper sense, when you look at that, is that you know, the word Christian has taken since the Protestant revolt. Has taken on this generalized, you know, ambiguous sort of um, understanding. Uh, you know, yeah, Christian to be Christian, basically, you just have to acknowledge Christ or say, yeah, I believe in Him, um, and so you're then a Christian. Well, that's not how that it is. Is that Christian? If you always meant Catholic, Catholic and Christian were always the same. Is that when you hear in in the early church written, you know, the Christians did, you know, they did this. Is it was the Catholics? I mean, it was the same. It was there was no ambiguous amb- confusion about that. It was the same. Is that if you were a Catholic, you were a Christian. If you were a Christian, you're a Catholic. There was nothing mm, else. Yeah. And so it wasn't only to the Protestants is that then you have this again ambiguous term of Christian. And so, but to be a Christian meant, of course, that you believe everything that our Lord taught, everything that he instituted, everything that he gave, everything he, basically you follow him the whole way. You don't just follow him part of the way or half the way, is it? Then you're a Christian, which is being Catholic. And so really technically, and it's true, is that actually the Protestants who say, yes, I'm a Christian, they're not. They're not Christians because if they were, they were they'd be Catholic. That's right. That's right. Mm. So, but you now normally now in, in normal parlance, and when you're talking with a Protestant, obviously you're not going to say to them, "Well, you're not Christian." I mean, you're not going <laughs> to. I mean, that'd be. Un, I mean, not kind and charitable. I mean, so, but you understand the theology, the understanding behind it is that really they're they're not. Mm. Um, but you know, so you can see because of that inconsistencies that they have in Protestantism, you know. You know, they, they've taken unto themselves in a, an explicit way to be the sole judge of everything, the soul of every. They are the sole interpreter of everything. So, you know, it's basically what it's based not in Christ. It's based then in man. Many years ago, Protestants stole the term Christians from us. And more recently, the Novus Ordo has stolen the term Catholic from us. 
They don't let us keep much, do they? No, 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 no. It's it's uh, you know, history repeats itself. Mm. Uh, you know, it's you know, man, man. We we certainly know our fallen human nature, and uh, man, as Scripture says too, we are a stiff-necked people, and we we continue to be so. On page one hundred and forty-four, the headline reads: "In the belief and practice of religion, our separated brethren, being Protestants, profess and perform many things which are not written in the Scriptures. They know them only from tradition." <clears throat> Again, this is uh, one of those things where um, they do believe um, a lot of things that they only ultimately got. Well, if you search the scriptures, it, it's not there, or at least it's not explained there or interpreted there. And so, you know, again, Monsignor goes and he says, he talks again about private judgment. And he says, uh, you know, that meaning private judgment is as, uh, again, it's the, the op- open the Bible and, and nothing but the Bible with a free interpretation for all, as the Protestants say. And that certainly is going to again, as I said before, um, play to one's pride, one's, um, in, you know, entice others to say, wow, that'd be nice because I can do it, you know, my way. You know, it's like the old Frank Sinatra song, you know, I did it my way. Well, that's <laughs> kind of what Protestants is, you know, I, I can do it my way. I can do whatever I want. Um, so it, fl- again, flatters the, the pride, but, you know, it doesn't, um, but the, the inconsistency comes with with that private judgment, meaning that um, they don't then just rely upon themselves, because you can look and say, well, then why do they have churches? Why do they have then pastors? Why do they have preachers? Why do they even have some clergy? If it was, you know, private interpretation only. Um, so, but the the hierarchy then part of it, of course, is is in scripture. Um, not the private judgment part, but yet they hold the private judgment, but they then try to apply the hierarchy part as well to it. And so, you know, again, why why are there then, you know, go to Barnes and Nobles or or you know, um, Books a Million or Sporters or whatever, and, and you go to the spirituality section or the and you see you know hundreds and hundreds of books written by Protestants and you know this preacher, this uh, whatever whatever you know these people or what have you, this is how to interpret the Bible, or this is what to believe, or this is to apply, this is what faith means, you know, all these sort of things. Or look at the TV evangelists, you know, you have, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, all, name any of them. And, and, you know, they all, you know, they have these people who are coming to listen to them because they're looked upon as a teacher or as a, um, you know, interpreter of that. Well, that just goes against the the private interpretation of that because why would you need them if you yourself could interpret yourself mm. and, and so in but the um you know they they do have those things that they do which are not uh you know written in scriptures and you know monsignor writes and I'll just write uh, and he gives a couple examples as well not only about of course the the hierarchy of course in in regards to to uh, their private interpretation as well, but yet he also says um, that they believe Protestants, most Protestants believe that baptism may be validly administered by, say, heretics and infidels, or that infants should be baptized, because there are some Protestant sects who do believe in infant baptism. Most don't, but yet you know that's nowhere in Scripture where that's implied, and or they also that they believe in the Lord's Day is Sunday and not Saturday, mm. as it was under the old law. 
you know, that was, of course, the church said that, I mean, interpreted that as that, although you have some Protestants like the, I think it's the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, who do it on Saturday, you know, say Saturday is the, the Lord's Day, not Sunday, but the most still Sunday, is it? Mm -hmm. Or where do they get that from the Catholic Church? Where um, they believe that under certain circumstances and for a good motive, it may be lawful for Christians to take an oath. Or Monsignor continues, he says, they believe that the use of strangled food or of blood is permissible. You know, although, again, these practices seem to be rather disapproved of by Scripture, most Protestants act and interpret them according to the tradition and authority of the Catholic Church. And, you know, so, like, again, Sunday is observed, not Saturday, as the Lord's Day, because it was the Catholic Church who interpreted that and implemented that. Mm. And so, you know, I always look at, I always tell people this way to remind yourself, Anything that you can see, you know, you can look, there are some things that, of course, Protestants hold just as we hold in certain areas. But you remind yourself, it's not because they had any grace or any of the understanding um, that they were able to hold that. But anything, any, you know, the Holy Ghost was not guiding them. It's because they stole it from the Catholic Church. And so, you know, yeah, you keep that in mind. And that, that blows away then, of course, the whole false ecumenism of the Novus Ordo, you know, that they have. And and because that's what the church has taught is that anything outside the church is false. Is that anything that you may see that may be true of that is not because of their own volition, it's because they stole it from the Catholic church. And, and, and so you have that. Um, 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 and so even some of those things that the, like their forefathers, the Protestant, uh, you know, uh, who broke at the, Revo at the Reformation, etc. You know, they they were all Catholic. I mean, you know, they were so they had that understanding. They were, you know, trained in a sense as then as, as Catholic. And so, um, but then you know you had uh, um, the the so though it's almost like uh, like when you talk about I don't remember if I talked it last time about like Islam. You know, Muhammad Muhammad basically. Um, started his demonic false sect in, in regards to he picked something some things from Christianity at the time, you know, Catholicism. He picked some things from Judaism. He picked some things then from paganism. And he just all put them all kind of together and shook it all around. And <laughs> they said, well, this is a new faith. Yeah. This is a new religion. Well, so it's the same kind of with the Protestants is that they took a lot of things from Catholicism and kept it. Um, but then they added their own little things here or there and they shook it all up and say well this is the true faith now for them and so you know it's uh um, you so you have um so those things that they do believe that aren't specifically in scripture they got it from the catholic they got it from tradition of the catholic church um, at least the muslims have some creativity with the quran because um well martin luther as i'm reading on page 146 uh, says that he basically added the word alone into a quote, which would read now after he edited it, for we account a man to be justified by faith alone without the works of the law. So uh, they're pretty sneaky with um, just adding in what they want. Oh, yeah. There's no, there's no, <laughs> I, you know, I've, that's, you know, you bring that up to a Protestant, of course, and, and you know, they're, they're shocked at that. They've never heard that. No, often, you know, never. Well, he did. That. Well, then you can go back in history. I mean, it's even known by even Protestant scholars. There's a book I think uh, it's called uh, All About Luther. It was written like in the 1800s by, or collated by a Monsignor, and basically, but using a lot of Protestant scholars themselves from the actual words of this and that, and all 
And Luther was just, you know, horrible. I mean, he is, he was a horrible man. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was well known then by the Protestant scholars. Yeah. That that's what Luther did. He just inserted that, you know, and then he of course got rid of like St. The book of St. James and, and all that sort of thing. And, was to his own whim that he did that just to justify his own position. And he had no qualms with that. I mean, think of that. I mean, what Protestantism, this religion of Protestantism is based upon a, a, a man who the founder of Protestantism basically is Martin Luther, but a man who had the termity, the audacity uh, to, to play with the words of God and say, I don't want that. I want to do that. And he, he, he juxtapose his own words uh, in that of God's words. Mm. And, you know, think of that. I mean, that's, that's like, um, I mean, how much of a, of a, how prideful and arrogant is that? And that's certainly then you can see that is certainly then the, uh, the son then of Lucifer. Uh, Cause that's what Lucifer, you know, he, mm-hmm. you know, he had the audacity, you know, saying, you know, uh, I'm not, I, I will not worship. I will not, I, you know, it's me who, who and, and inserting himself in the place of God. So, I mean, that's that's the father of Protestantism right there. Yeah. And it says here, you know, um, when Martin Luther, he thus answered to his critics, I want it this way. Pavis and ass are the same thing. So I will, so I command. My will is a reason for it. <laughs> I was speaking to a Baptist the other day and um, I basically said how, you know, there's things changed and added in the King James version of the Bible. Um, I don't think he had heard of that before. He was saying to me, "Oh, the only thing they changed in the King James is that they translated it and put it into a more linear version to make it more consumable." But um, I mean, this answer to his critics, Martin Luther, he's basically admitted to editing. So I guess there's really no rebuttal there. No, I mean, like I said, history. I mean, it's history. It's it is it's what happened, and and it's actually well documented and went and by his own words. This is something about you know when we look at uh, those uh, the wicked people of the world, <clears throat> you know, they're often very arrogant mm-hmm. in, in what they do. And they have an arrogance because, uh, you know, they say, well, like Martin Luther said, you know, I, I want it this way. I want this. And I, so I did it. And I, you know, and he's very arrogant about it. And, you know, so you can look at that and see and apply that to, you know, uh, you know, all the, the wicked of the world, they do the same thing. And it's well known that they do these things, but yet how easily people forget that or how easily people will kind of cover that sort of thing up or, you know, and, and just, or, or say, no, that, that really didn't happen. But, you know, for a lot of Protestants, even of their own, um, you know, religion that they have, whether, whether, whether sect they're in were Baptist or Methodist or whatever, is that they're often very ignorant, uh, and often very purposefully led to be ignorant in their really basis of, of their religion, because, you know, even in a, in a reasonable, natural, you know, even natural reason, a lot of these things, that, these inconsistencies that Monsignor talks about are very glaring. I mean, just anyone with their right uh, mind would see that, wait a minute, how does that make sense? And, mm. and so a lot of them, even today, Protestants are very ignorant. They're only, and I, I kind of equate it this way, is that, you know, Protestants have this reputation, but it's a false reputation that they know, but they know the Bible, they can quote the Bible, they can, 
they know it back and forth. You you say what's in here, and they'll still still be able to remember. They have mem- all memorized. They know it. It's not true. None of them have that. What they have is that they have memorized only certain portions of it, like certain little things. And so they have that. Yeah, Matthew chapter six, uh, verse twenty-five to to thirty says this. You know, blah blah blah. They'll say it, and they can spit it out. And then, and then everyone's supposed to be impressed. Like, Whoa, that's great, wonderful. You must know the whole thing. Oh yeah, I read it. Yeah. Well, no, you don't know it. Mm. They know certain little things like that, and that's what they're taught, though, to, you know, these little certain passages. And certainly, they, I'm sure they read the Bible. I mean, they've read it, but they don't, you know, so you have this false um, kind of uh, um, facade of what a Protestant, you know, what they must know the scripture because they can memorize or they can spit these things out to impress people in a certain sense. Mm. Well, it's like that with, you know, Martin Luther's that they'll whitewash a lot of the things and say, well, no, you know, well, I never heard that. I never heard this. Well, then you can look. This is why you go back and say, this is what Martin Luther actually wrote and said. You read it and you read it. And, you know, and there's, and a lot of them are shocked and say, I didn't, we didn't know. Well, no kidding. But because if, <laughs> if you knew that, if you saw that, your natural reason really would start to kick in. You just say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How could that be? And how can we explain this? And And then you begin to maybe open yourself up to actual graces to be able to say, wait a minute, the Catholic church isn't then, you know, as bad as we thought it was. And and actually they have the truth and we don't. So, and then I'm sure that's what a lot of Protestant converts who come to the Catholic faith, um, I'm sure they probably went through a certain process like that. I think I remember reading an article online maybe a year ago or something. And it was basically by an ex-Protestant. I think it was an ex-Protestant minister and how he basically admitted to always, you know, trying to convert people from Catholicism. And then eventually when he looked at things, he just realized, hang on, Protestantism is actually illogical and the Catholic Church makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, I mean, our faith is, the Catholic faith is obviously spiritual, but it's logical. I mean, it follows a very certain pattern and it's very, it, you know, f- our our faith, of course, drives our reason, but our reason is able to understand that this is logical. We would like to remind you that you are listening to Tradition and the Church on member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Matthew Arthur, and I am joined by Father Michael Oswald. And today we've been discussing Chapter 7, Aberrations of Protestantism. Well, Father, we can move on to Chapter 8. And uh, instead of focusing on the negatives of false religions, we're now going to talk about the positives of tradition. Uh, This is chapter 8, Incorruption of Tradition, it is called, and the first headline reads, the traditions of the church are not subject to corruption. Right. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, that, the the understanding, the the basic bedrock of that is in the words of our Lord, is that, you know, the the church, of course, is perfect, is started by him. Um, of course, it's holy. It's perfect. It is in the faith is perfect. It, it it cannot be corrupted because if it could be corrupted, then well, then our Lord wasn't God because He would have started something that was corruptible in its in its essence. Um, so it is um, it is uh, the, the the traditions then of the church uh, are, are not subject to that um, corruption. So it's an uh, that the church. For Protestants, of course, their understanding or their one of their 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 throws at the Catholic Church is that their affirmation that um, the Church is not then infallible. Um, they say that the Church, the Catholic Church, is not infallible. They, 
um, they they say that it is not uh, infallible. But then Monsignor actually, and I think this might be good. I'll just read actually this um, section because he makes it uh, pretty good. Is that he talks about tradition, basically what tradition is. Um, and, and this is good for us to understand what is tradition. And we've been talking about it in, in many different ways, but he kind of puts it in a very um, three-part part way. He says, for tradition in the first place is not, quote-unquote, oral in the sense that it is maintained and propagated only, quote-unquote, through man's lips. It is oral in the sense that in the beginning it was received by the faithful from the apostles themselves, not in writing, but through their preaching, teaching, or institutions established in the church by the same apostles. What the apostles did not write, but preached, taught, or instituted, was afterwards written by their immediate disciples, and sometimes by the disciples of these immediate apostolic disciples. So tradition, in the second place, he goes on, is quote-unquote oral, um, not in the sense that it was never written, uh, but in the sense that what in the beginning was not written by the inspired author, authors was written afterwards by their disciples. So what the disciples heard or were taught by the apostles and not committed to the scriptures, they afterwards laid down in writing. And then he goes on, he says, in the third place, says tradition is, quote unquote, oral, as distinguished from that part of Revelation which was written by the apostles, namely scripture. For what the apostolic disciples afterwards wrote, as heard, learned, or as instituted by the apostles, is what we call properly speaking tradition. We must remember that not all the truths which the apostles preached and taught were written or discussed in their epistles, because most of those truths were plain enough and accepted by all. They simply wrote, as the occasion demanded their further, further attention, to confirm the brethren in their absence. So that was a. It's good to understand that that tradition, because people who have a, and Protestants even will happen that tradition is just solely oral. I mean, it's just like handed down orally, and to this very day, it's never been written down, it's never been recorded. It's just oral kind of teaching, which, on a natural level, you can see that that could be very well constructed. You know, I think we've all played that game where you had, you know, as as children, you know, you sit in a in a row. You know, on a line, you have one person whisper in one ear at the uh, of someone of something uh, uh, at one end of the line um, of whatever they want to whisper, and then that person whispers the exact same thing, or supposedly down to the very end. And then the, you see by the very end is that how that has changed throughout that, even just in that little exercise. Mm. I believe that uh, that game is called Chinese Whispers. I wonder if it's racist for me to say that nowadays. Oh. I don't know. I mean, I think there's probably, I think that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> but, but that's, you can certainly see where just strictly oral in that sense. I mean, certainly you can have different interpretations or whatever you, but you know, Monsignor writes that when we think of tradition, it's not just oral in that aspect. It was written down eventually. I mean, it was, but most of it was just lived at the moment, of course, by the teaching of the apostles. And so people lived it. They understood it. They heard it directly in that regards. And so there was no ambiguity in that regards. But then, you know, the apostles, of course, began to die. And 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 so they realized we need to write some of these things down mm. to to teach future generations. So, you know, without any corruption, which is guided by the Holy Ghost, of course. And so they did. And so they wrote these things down. And so 
um, it wasn't scripture in that regards, but it was tradition. So, but it, but eventually it was written down. And but the thing of it is, is that all of them, all the early church, the apostles, they all accepted all these things as a matter of course and as part of the the daily life of the church. They they didn't necessarily think that we had to write these things down because they lived it. I mean, it was. You know, everyone everyone knew it. There was no really necessary necessary to write it down at the moment. But again, as time went on, as years went on, you know, like I said, the apostles began to die, and then you have sort of they realize, well, we better just make sure that we have these things written down as they as the apostles taught us, um, as they exactly. And so, um, you know, that's a good explanation. I liked how Monsignor did that. Um, there, I think that was on page uh, um, 150 and 151. He certainly uh, put it very succinctly in, in regards to what tradition, uh, understanding of tradition is. On uh, page 153, the headline reads, Tradition approved by the church is a supernatural and absolute certitude in every century of the church. Yes. I mean, um, you know, as Monsignor says, you know, God, Almighty God in his in his in his wisdom and his providence and his, his solicitude for our souls, for, for man. Um, you know, he gave the church all she needs. And she gave not only in, in all times and places, that also many learned uh, and holy men, you know, that their, their, their knowledge that you can see of, of Scripture, their knowledge of tradition, their knowledge of the faith, um, seem to be so um, supernatural compared to, you know, uh, than, than human, really. And so, in other words, they were so learned in these things that they were so guided by the Holy Ghost, so uh, had the, the, so much wisdom to themselves and prudence that they, they um, you know, were known for their learning and for their teaching. And you can see in the life of the church, that in each era of the church, you have so many of these great and wonderful teachers, often saints, um, who who were were uh, that the church had provided, that Almighty God had provided in the church uh, to um, to teach uh, with this absolute certitude uh, in in regards to the faith. But all of them that you can see that uh, all the great fathers of the church, the doctors of the church, the great theologians, and all they were all one in their consent and union of the faith. I mean, they, they taught the same thing. Uh, there was no, you know, um, there was no kind of uh, um, diversity in, in regards to uh, heresy. I mean, once you became a heretic, it was widely known. Everyone knew it. You were excluded from the church. But, you know, you so, the, so Almighty God had had, had these... Uh, men that were endowed with special graces, special gifts um, at the helm of the church. And often it was, of course, uh, the popes too, um, who with the most you know, perfect consent and union among them that the, the Holy Ghost then placed then to rule the church of God. And this is, this is why too, as well, we can look at the papacy itself, St. Peter, um, you know, it is St. Peter, the papacy that keeps the gates of hell from prevailing on the church. I mean, it is, he is the bulwark against that. And the, every Pope of course has done that, which again is a repudiation then of Vat these Vatican II quote unquote Popes. Because if, 
if if one looks today, especially like at Bergoglio, and if he's supposed to be the one that's keeping the gates of hell from prevailing on the Catholic Church, then boy, we have been misled for so many years because <laughs> he he's the gatekeeper. I mean, he's the elect, he's the porter there, opening up the doors of of hell to the church, um, certainly in a very obvious way. So, but the, you know, you 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 keep we keep that in mind that it was an impossibility that any sort of new teachings, any novelty, um, could infect uh, the whole church um, because that Almighty God had placed these leaders, uh, you know, by by their grace, by grace, by their ordination, by uh, all this to to protect uh, the church. And you know, Monsignor makes a good point. On 155, he talks about novelty, and he says, um, he says, if ever novelty did succeed, uh, it was a local occurrence, never a general event. In other words, it was not universal. There was no council, approved council of the church that taught or changed the faith or taught uh, heresy or imposed it upon the universal church for all to believe and, and hold. There was nothing that was imposed upon the universal church for all to believe by the popes, by by uh, the councils, which would be a repudiation or different from what the church has always held, which is, again, another sign. I always go back to it, I know, but it's another sign that Vatican II is, is not Catholic. It is not the Catholic church because it has done that, just just that. It has then instituted novelty and has given the universal church then error, has given it evil, has given it imposed uh, bad disciplines, etc., on universally, not just locally. So right away you can tell that's not the Catholic church then because that's an impossibility because of the indefectibility of the church, because of uh, the... Uh, uh, church uh, being uh, perfect and not able to give those things. In that sense you refer to, what would an example of a local occurrence be? Well, you can look at any heresy, like um, mm-hmm. take the, um, uh, say, like take the Arian heresy. Or you can take, say, the um, um, defections like uh, uh, the schism, the great, great schism of the Orthodox now, of um, um, anything of that. You can look and say that they were uh, partial. In other words, they weren't imposed upon the faith. But there was a certain, certainly a, a group or um, a faction, so to speak, of the church that did split from, uh, you know, like you mm-hmm. had, like with Arian Harris, you had Arius, uh, you know, who began preaching, of course, that our Lord was not divine. And then he, he began, and then, but then so many began to follow him of the, who were in the church. And so there was a large section then of bishops and priests um, and laity as well, who began to become Arian, began to cut themselves off from the Catholic church, became heretics ultimately, but it was a large swath, but it was not imposed. It did not infect the whole universal church. In other words, the Catholic church, the whole Catholic church did not become Arian. Um, a, a lot of it did, but there were still, you know, the, those who did not. The Pope did not. The um, you say have great saints, the Saint Athanasian, the Athanasius, who did not. So you have, you know, those who, uh, those who upheld the teaching of the Church. And so, you know, you had it wasn't uh, um, it was uh, it wasn't in the whole Church uh, it, because the whole Church cannot be subverted. There, you know, there have been, as Monsignor says, there have been defections, but they were partial. 
and he and he makes a good point uh, or makes a good analogy. He says, large though dead branches seem to be part of a church of a tree, but the sooner they are caught down, the better it is for the tree. It becomes more um, vigorous in size and foliage and life. So it is with the church, the great tree of life. It is planted in the garden of God and watered by the graces of the Holy Ghost. It will live unto the end of time. So, in other words, you know, there are times when, uh, well, you know, like in gardening, uh, you know, when you have to, say, prune a tree. You know, it, you know, right, when you prune a tree in the, I think it's in the fall, right, where it's about time now we should prune it. And as you prune the tree, you know, you have to cut away a lot of the dead branches, but you also cut away even some of the ones, you know, that uh, are making the tree kind of full. And after you're done, it looks kind of bare, like, whoa. But then it begins to grow even larger than after the next year. It becomes more bushy, more fruitful, etc., because of that pruning. And so it's uh, Monsignor's making a good point here is that there are times when the church has faced these things where novelty has crept in and then people have succumbed to it. And there it seemed as though, you know, that, that it was like the Arian heresy, St. Jerome saying, you know, he woke up, the world woke up and moaned because it saw itself Arian. I mean, basically. But, you know, you, but from that point, the church after that flourished, you know, because you, even though he had that. So, you know, it's not, uh, um, it, it's, uh, you know, there is, uh, there's that, that play that goes on and there, that there are, can be novelties, but it can never corrupt uh, the whole church, can never. It, it is an impossibility. It's infallible because the church is infallible. It's indefectible. Um, it cannot. It will last to the end of time. The gates of hell will not prevail. And, you know, but I always tell this to people, especially in today's times, is that, you know, the, the, our Lord said that the gates of hell will not prevail against her, but he did not say that the gates of hell will not try to, to prevail against her, you know, because we see that played out in history time and time again. And we see that today, that the gates of hell, of, when the gates of hell being that of heresy and schism, um, and that has played a large part in today, but it has not destroyed the church. I mean, even though the world looks at the Novus Ordo as the Catholic Church, but we know it's not. The church is alive and well. It's just a lot smaller, like it was, like say, in the Arian heresy days or in any great persecution of the church. But it's still alive and well because it will still last to the end of time. Hmm. It says uh, on page 155, history cannot designate one single instance of general innovation in the church. That would be the end. The gates of hell would prevail, but it is impossible. That reminds me of some contemporary authors, quote unquote, Catholic authors, and they might write things about Vatican II and saying there is a deep mystery in the church, for instance. But they're wrong because there is no mystery in the church. That's just a heresy. The Novus Ordo is just a heresy. It has nothing to do with the church. And this book confirms that. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, the, our, uh, you know, the church is visible. The church is, uh, there's nothing secret about her. There's nothing, there's, you know, we're not Gnostics. In other words, there's not secret knowledge that we have that somehow, you know, people, you know, they have to go through something that's only a few people know this secret knowledge, this secret mystery. Certainly there is, there is great mystery within, uh, do we have, I mean, the mystery of things, mystery in the proper sense of the word, meaning not 
not like a whodunit sort of mystery, not like, you know, a Columbo kind of thing, you know, I had to figure, mm-hmm. but a mystery in the sense of awe of, you know, we as finite beings cannot understand some of these infinite things, you know, like the Trinity, who can fully explain the Trinity, but we can explain it, what was, what has been revealed to us and we can, in, and, and we, so we have that, but it's not as if it's something that we, you know, we'll, we'll never ever, but ever, you know, understand anything of it. I mean, like the incarnation and the, the hypostatic union, the, the Eucharist itself, etc. These are great mysteries of our faith. Mysteries of being of being in awe of it, of being, you know, on our knees in silent awe of like how, you know, because of our finite minds, it's it's we accept it, we believe it, and and we we understand some of it because what has been revealed to us or taught through us uh, to us from the church herself. Um, but yet, you know, there's we're not going to fully fully grasp it all. Um, but we, you know, but the mystery will often that you'll see of, of people like, yes, Vatican New Apologists will say, yes, the mis- this is a mystery. Well, no, because, you know, we're, we're not necessarily talking about the, the, uh, those kind of mysteries. We're talking about basically the, is this Catholic or not? I mean, to be understanding of the basics of either it's Catholic or it's not. And, and in other words, is this the true church or not? And, you know, it, it our Lord has made it clear that he's gave us the things and, and the Holy, Holy Mother Church as well as to recognize the church herself. It's a visible society. It is not hidden. It is not, you know, it is not so much so that even the simplest of man can see what is right and what is wrong. There's not a simplest of man can see what is the church or what is not. Because if he couldn't, if he had to be a theologian, which these Vatican II apologists ultimately say, yeah, you, you, you know, telling the people, you can't understand these things. You just have to go along because you'll never understand it. Well, then, you know, God has then made it so difficult uh, to see then what is, because we're talking about salvation of souls. It's that, you know, you're going to choose, we have to choose rightly here for the sake of our souls. And God has made that choice clear to us. He's given us uh, all that we need to understand what we need to do to save our souls. But again, like we said before, it's applying that, of course, in our life that we have to to do. But so, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I I have no, uh, it's probably why I don't get in a lot of debates with Vatican II apologists anymore, because uh, I don't, I I kind of, I don't have a lot of patience uh, anymore uh, with the illogical, you know, kind of things that they try to impose. It's difficult to argue with people if they're on a different wavelength. They've got so many facts wrong in their preliminary beliefs. You know, it's, yeah, there's so much you'd have to, you have to go a lot deeper and establish things before getting to the Vatican II issue, I would think at times. Oh yeah. I mean, today, I think in my, in my view anyway, and this is why I've, you know, I've, I've really kind of reverted in a certain sense to basically in my catechisms, basically just teaching the very basics of things. It's just to understand, because you've understand the basics of under, just like we had the, our class um, on Wednesday night, this last one, where, I mean, I'm talking about the church, but, you know, basically just, well, what is the church and the definition of what the church is? These, you know, basic things that we must know, but yet how easy people um, uh, don't understand them. And if you don't understand the basics, then, I mean, basically anything goes because you can kind of make up things as you want. And that's often what Vatican, you know, two has done is that they, they rely upon the ignorance of basic understanding of tenets of the faith. Uh, like the simple, simple thing of is the, is, is the, uh, church of Christ, the Catholic church or not? 
I mean, it, you know, the church says, no, the church of Christ is, est, the Catholic church. And, you know, that's, it's very simple. I mean, it, uh, but yet they, of course, Vatican II teaches, no, no, the church of Christ subsists within the Catholic church kind of thing. And, and you know, this language, which is confusing. And, and, and so they, they, they change the whole basics of the faith. And so I think it's very important just to understand the basics. Hmm. On page 156, the headline reads, the canon or rule of St. Vincent of Leran is true in an affirmative, not in an exclusive sense. It is simply the way to find out the apostolicity of a certain doctrine in order to repel novelty. Well, what is the canon or rule, Father, of St. Vincent of Leran? Well, this, I have to admit, this this little chapter here is uh, quite confusing, or not quite confusing, it is is kind of dense in a certain way and, and you know there's a lot into it and it it can be quite confusing to 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 understand um this because you know uh, the saint vincent of loren of course is is often used um by those like other uh, recognized resist crowd etc like an explanation for their reposition and things of that nature but you know so there can be a um a misinterpretation sometimes of that. And Monsignor does a, a pretty good job of, of, of trying to put it as simply as you can, but even then, it's still quite, and he even ends, and we'll, I mean, not with what he says later, but I'll, we can get to that. But um, basically, I'll just, I can just read what he basically says. He's talking about St. Vincent of Lorraine um, in, in one of the, the uh, books that he had written, the tracts that he had written. Um, and he says, his, his purpose was is intended to discern what is pure from what is corrupt, to distinguish the truth from what is simply an opinion, to determine what is orthodox and what is faulty. Um, in other words, one of the things that, of course, that uh, the the more famous ones you can say is what uh, is what Monsignor quotes here from Saint Vincent. He says Saint Vincent says that we must hold what has been always everywhere, what has been held always everywhere and by all. This is truly and properly Catholic. This can be obtained if we follow universality, antiquity, consent. Um, and this is this is the the Vincentian canon, so to speak, or rule um, is basically. And and the, there's a, um, and again, Monsignor does a good job um, in trying to explain that um, to the. But so if you look at what he says about universality, um, what St. Uh, Vincent means by universality, Monsignor writes this, he says, means universality means the one true faith, which the church believes in every part of the world. Um, that is the church consent, uh, that is the church consent to a certain doctrine at the time of the appearance of a new doctrine different from the old one. Antiquity, he says, means relative antiquity. The consent of the church just before the novelty begins to gain a foothold in the church. And the third, a canon or rule may be applied in either an in, in, in affirmative or an exclusive sense. It is applied in an affirmative sense when the rule is applied to what has been defined, not to what has been not yet defined by the church. It is applied in an exclusive or negative sense when nothing can belong to the deposit of faith which has not been explicitly believed always, ever, and by all the faithful. And so truth, he says again, uh, may be implicitly contained in revelation, hence not proclaimed by the church yet, or explicitly contained revelation, which believe uh, 
by all the faithful are proclaimed universal by the church. And so, you know, it, again, this is a, a, it's basically St. Vincent is trying to, what he put forth in it is, is trying to help those of future generations to discern um, false from true, basically, in regards to the teaching, you know, what brought forth to the teaching of the church. And so the question is, is as St. As Monsignor continues, the question is not about an implicit but an explicit doctrine, because whatever is contained in the deposit of objective revelation has been believed everywhere, always, and by all, at least implicitly. Nor could one be a Catholic who is not disposed to believe all, also explicitly, whatever he believes implicitly, after what is implicitly believed is sufficiently proposed to him as divinely delivered. Now, again, that's quite confusing. You know, you kind of read that and you're like, okay, that my head's kind of spinning in a certain sense. Um, but basically, um, you know, if if a doctrine is already defined by the church, it certainly then belongs to the deposit of faith. In other words, we something is defined uh, by the church, everyone has to believe it. And there's no, I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts because it's always then believed. Um, before it's always been taught, so everyone has to believe it. Now, the Vincenzan rule, as Monsignor, as the as the title of the um, this chapter says, he says it cannot be applied though in an exclusive sense. In other words, there may be doctrines implicitly contained revelation which were not always sufficiently known, hence not always explicitly declared and believed as such by the Church before the Church's declaration. Those doctrines could be denied without shipwreck of the faith. But after the church's declaration, they are to be held as revealed. And so they belong to the deposit of faith and must be explicitly believed. And so, you know, you, you basically, there are things that um, maybe were not understood quite explicitly yet. Um, but... Uh, once the church has then declared them as, as to say, no, this is has to be of belief, either whatever um, uh, level it wants to ascribe to it, whether it be de fide of faith, whether it be of, you know, all the way down to even just even theological opinions that are that must be believed, um, that a Catholic must believe them, is that you cannot just deny them, which is, uh, uh, again, goes against Protestantism. And the Novus Ordo, really, because in there you can pick and choose what you want to believe. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be. You know, it doesn't have to be. Even if they believed it, maybe in the past, you can probably say, "Well, well, it's changed now. We don't really have to have to believe it too much now." Or, you know, so it's just it's a, another aspect. But again, you know, when you come to this chapter, it's it's good to read it. But again, it, it is. I, I do admit this is one of the chapters that are often is a little bit dense, a little bit um, um, difficult to understand, and and uh, it's kind of confusing at times. Um, but there's I there was an article that was written uh, on Nova Sordo Watch on um, Saint Vincent on his um, his rule um, because you know the the recognizing resistors like to use again him uh, you know as kind of a in a skewed way, so to speak, um, and and but the Nova Sordo Watch, you can probably look in the archives to find uh, that article. 
and it was written very well, very succinctly, very um, understandable um, to the layperson um, on truly what this means, what it means when St. Vincent says, you know, that we must hold what has been always held everywhere and by all, um, you know, that is, uh, that is the, the proper way. And, but then, you know, again, Monsignor, he goes and, and uh, um, he does say like at the very, uh, at the very end, you know, even he himself, I think was, you know, realizing that I just kind of wrote something kind of dense here for people. And in best, cause he's, he was quoting Cardinal Newman before. And he says, Cardinal, Cardinal Newman thinks that, this rule, the ascension rule, um, you know, determines what Christianity is rather than what it is not. Anyhow, it is not a mathematical measure. It must be applied by practical judgment and good sense. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, sometimes things like that are often left to those who are, or should be left to those who are much smarter, <laughs> I guess you could say, or much, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, to be able to help explain uh, that and not to be used kind of indiscriminately and and uh, with the but explained in the in how the church herself has explained it and, and understands it. Mm, I think that's a it's a good time to end our episode, Father. Uh, for listeners, as we close out this episode, we have covered chapter seven and eight of the textbook Tradition and the Church. And thank you, Father Michael Oswald, for joining us on this episode. Sure, thank you for having me. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out this episode? Uh, no, just uh, other than uh, uh, as far as us and over here uh, in the states, uh, just continue to pray for our country. Uh, we had mm-hmm. a, a good uh, uh, defeat uh, of of I called uh, I called her the the demon in the pantsuit in regards to <laughs> the um, you know. But it you know we must pray of course for um, uh, our president elect uh, for his conversion to the Catholic faith, but also his protection to maybe. Uh, help to turn back the tide of some things. Um, and, uh, but, you know, so we, we certainly can uh, look to, and I was just listening to a little, little bit of Bishop uh, Sanborn's uh, discussion on that. And, and certainly we have good hope uh, as well, but yet we have our work to cut out and always have to make our country Catholic. Um, but also know that, you know, that you can certainly see the the battle of evil against evil is not just played out solely in the spiritual realm. It's played, it does play out in the temporal realm as well. Um, and so that's the battle we're in. So we must pray hard and we must do our work um, and fight hard to with the standard of Christ in the church uh, in, in the world. Once again, Father Oswald, thank you for your time. And we will talk to you again next time as we continue this series. Okay. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Tradition and the Church. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that Tradition and the Church is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. 